Uh, we talk a lot about inspiration, but we really don't talk about work ethic and just how hard it is just to day after day get up and go out there and, and make a lot of really bad photographs in search of the one that, that you know, that has that spark and that, uh, that does more than just say, look how well I can use a camera. Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. Welcome to another episode of the Traveling Image Makers Podcast with your hosts, Hugo Che and Ralph Velasco. Our guest today is a very special guest. Uh, it's someone who we have long admired and whose work we have been following for, for quite some time. Uh, he's a world and a humanitarian assignment photographer, a best-selling author, digital publisher, international workshop leader, and uh, who has a, leads a kind of a nomadic life, is quite frequently uh, around the world in very exotic places. So please join me in welcoming David Dushimin. Hi, David. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm good. I'm actually great. And it's a great uh, pleasure and, and honor to have you here. And uh, Ralph, what about you? What's, uh, what's your up to these days? I'm really excited about this show. I've been following David for a long, long time. And uh, it's really great to uh, actually be able to talk to him and to gain some some insight from his uh, vast experience. I'm really excited about this show, f for sure. So, David, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? That was not uh, condensing what I, the brief introduction that I that I gave you. Where, where are you now? Are you at home? I, I am at home. This is a, a, a rare uh, stopover for me. I've just come back from uh, a month in Kenya, mostly uh, splitting my time between safaris in the south uh, on the Maasai Mara and then uh, another sort of 10 days up north in an ongoing pro bono uh, assignment that I'm doing with uh, a group called the BOMA Project, working with uh, the extreme poor up in the arid uh, lands of uh, the northern parts of Kenya, kind of south of the Ethiopian border and, and to the west of the Somalian border. So this is a, a rare uh, furlough at home. And then not long from now, I head back out to uh, for a week photographing in uh, the old city of Jerusalem. And then I've got a couple photography workshops, workshops in, uh, in Rajasthan in Jodhpur, India. Great. When are you going to be in Jerusalem, David? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I arrive in Jerusalem. Uh, I arrive on the 11th of March and I'm there until about the 17th. Oh, I'm just going to miss you. I'll be there on the 19th. <laughs> oh, nuts. I, I, uh, is, have you been before? I've not been. No, I'm excited. Oh, yeah, me too. This is a, this is a first for me. So, um, I understand I've timed accidentally timed my visit perfectly with the, the festival of Purim, which, uh, as I understand it is quite visual. So, uh, very much looking forward to it. I have no, uh, no expectations, but I've been wanting to see, you know, old Jerusalem since, uh, since I was a kid. So this will be interesting. Yeah, Wonderful. No, I can claim my first 
being first uh, in Jerusalem before both of you. <laughs> I can assure you it's a, it's a wonderful place and, and all of the region. It's, uh, you'll definitely be owed by it. I right on. recommend it. Oh, so, I can't wait. Well, I'll, I'll, warm it up for, I'll warm it up for you, Ralph. Yeah. <laughs> Great. If I can make a suggestion, uh, look for a, a YouTube video of Peter Greenberg. He's a CBS travel correspondent. Okay. And uh, his interview with uh, Netanyahu, hmm. fantastic, really wonderful information about Israel and Jerusalem. Oh, wonderful. So just well, a little for that. research you might do. Mm. <laughs> You know, uh, you, you mentioned a couple of the places that you've been to just recently, but, uh, you know, there's Kenya, Tanzania, India, Turkey, Italy, England, Portugal, New Zealand, Australia, Mexico. Uh, these are all places, uh, including trips across Canada. Uh, do you have any that you're going back to over and over again that are just you know, calling you back? You know, the, the longer I do this, the more returning to places is becoming my preference, uh, actually, by by far, I I think I spent the first uh, well, the first number of years pursuing kind of everything that caught my eye. You know, I'd read an article on Iceland, and then I'd be on a on a plane to to Iceland, and then I'd read an article about somewhere else, and I I would be off there and kind of uh, a, a little bit attention deficit when it came to what I was doing, and I have uh, I've really settled into kind of a I hate to say a pattern, but I've I've really found some places that I, I adore and would rather, at least for the foreseeable while, return to these places and do deeper work, uh, work that, you know, you go to one place in two weeks or a week, it's just, you're just barely getting into the groove. You're just barely scratching the surface of your own vision of a place, your own experience of a place. And uh, and to hope that your, your photographs even capture a part of that, uh, I think is... I mean, that's a tall order. And so I, I, I think I'm kind of uh, the smart money's on me returning to places that I've already invested some of that time, that I already have an experience of, that I already feel a little bit more comfortable in, in terms of the language and, and the location. So I go back every year to, to Italy and in, on those trips, I will always go back to, to Venice and to Rome. And then I'll usually take a week and go to a new place and just kind of kind of scratch that itch of following my curiosity and seeing something new. So I love Italy. I, I adore the pace of life and the light there and, and just everything about it. Uh, I go back to Kenya with some frequency. Um, well, every year I'm in Kenya. I go back to uh, India with some frequency. And then there's also projects, you know, that that maybe I don't go to the same place, but it's the same theme or the same work. So uh, the last couple of years, uh, I have done uh, increasingly done underwater work and have a long term project in mind there. And so this year, much of my travel is well, it's not all to the same place. It's pursuing the same thing, photographing large pelagic animals uh, under underwater, things like giant manta rays and sharks and humpback whales and that sort of thing. So you mentioned Italy and you said it's dear to your heart, but maybe you also have some uh, not so nice memories about Italy. You had an, an accident there. When was that? Six years ago? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, P Pisa tried to kill me. Tried to uh, kill you. I was actually there. <laughs> I, was, I was there a few weeks after you your your accident happened and I was uh -huh. uh, going by that, that, that exact place, which is along the river and looking mm -hmm. at the the 
height of your fall. <laughs> I said, wow, ouch, that must have been yeah. <laughs> painful. Yeah, that's funny. That's what I said, too. <laughs> can you talk yeah. a little bit about that, David? You know, for yeah. people that aren't familiar with it, can you explain it a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, you know, I, I have this evacuation policy and I always assumed that I'd be pulled out of Democratic Republic of Congo or Haiti or Ethiopia or something. And uh, no one ever warned me about the dangers of Tuscany. Um, and uh, there's there's this wall in, in Pisa, actually, along much of the Arno River that flows through Tuscany. And in some places, it's quite high. And in the case of uh, my particular uh, accident, it, it was about 10 meters or 30 feet tall um but street levels at the top so you're sort of you're you're on the top of this wall looking down at the river and i was just sitting on the wall and i thought you know if i got into a slightly better position i might get a better photograph out of this and um to make a to make a long story short i jockeyed for a better position and missed my footing and uh fell to the bottom and i i landed on my feet which i think saved me um, cause I didn't think I was going to make it and I crushed both my feet and I broke my pelvis and, uh, effectively changed my plans, uh, for the year. I was in the middle of a, actually I was on the first night of a photography workshop I was leading. And, uh, of course that, that changed everything. And, um, I have yet to make my peace with Pisa. I haven't gone back yet, but, um, you know, it was as hard as that experience was and the recovery was long and I still don't. I still don't walk normally. I've got now I've got extreme arthritis in my ankles. And um, but it, it definitely was the beginning of the, the I mean, the last six years have been the best years of my life. So uh, much as I would love to walk comfortably again, uh, it's uh, I have no regrets. Although if I were to do it over again, I would probably be a little more careful around the wall. Yeah, I'll tell you, that that's one of my nightmares with uh, leading trips as much as I do, like nine months out of the year scouting and, and actually leading groups. Yeah, that yeah, kind of came to uh, to mind last year when I had a back problem, could hardly get out of bed and had three or four months of hardcore travel coming up. And I started thinking about, you know, how much my business is based on just being able to walk. Yeah. And, um, you know, how, how has that experience changed your outlook on life and photography in general? Uh, you know, I think I, I've always been the kind of the, the life is short guy uh, and wanting to live pretty hard and, and pretty intentionally. But that, you know, that kind of took it up to 11 for me. And I have become uh, much more intentional. Um, I really didn't think I was going to make it as I was falling. I thought this is it. Uh, in fact, that's all I sort of had time to think was I'm not going to make it. Um, and I since learned that three other people in the first few months of the year also fell off that wall and all three of them died. Um, I assume they fell backwards and landed on their heads or something, uh, whereas I went straight down. Um, so there is a sense of a sense of living on borrowed time. I mean, we all kind of are, but I think it just, it drove it home yet again. And, uh, I, I've, I think I've kind of dialed, like I said, I've dialed it up to 11 in terms of, I know that, that this life, when I get to the end, if I'm even, if I have the luxury of, you know, thinking about this in my last few moments, I'm going to think, my God, that went by quickly. And, uh, I, you know, everything in my life is sort of 
become my decision making has changed you know something is either a hell yes or it's a no i don't have time for well you know i don't know i'm not really excited but i guess i should do it Uh, there are some daily things in life of course that you know you still have to go grocery shopping and you still have to pay the bills but um as long as i possibly can i want the decisions that i make including the photographic projects that i take on the clients that i work for all of these decisions now come out of you know is this a hell yes? Is this something I really want to do with what will at the end of my life seem like, you know, seem like a very fast exposure, you know, 500th of a second, it's gone and, and you blink and you miss it. I I don't want that. I want to at, at least to know that my life has been filled absolutely to the brim with the things that I'm most excited about as much as possible. There's, as I said, there's daily realities. Um, but, uh, I think we all at least can choose to do things that are significant to us and not waste them with trivialities and, you know, all that time we spend on Facebook. And um, I think we could all stand to be a little more intentional with our lives and, you know, by extension with our photography. Did that realization somehow push you to, I don't know, do do more travel, see more places or do more things because... uh, you realized that life was uh, was short and you wanted to have it more fulfilling yeah i don't i don't think it pushed me to do more travel because to be honest uh as anyone that travels you know for most of the year i i mean i <laughs> i don't think i could fit more in mm-hmm. um but i as i said i became more intentional and i think that's where i started making better choices about uh, going deeper with my work instead of just seeing everything. You know, I, I, I've i only been now to, I think, 55 countries, which compared to a lot of my colleagues is actually a fairly small number. Um, I have friends that have been to 100 or 150. Um, I, I'm not actually interested in seeing every little country just to check off uh, a box. I want to go back to places where I have developed relationships with people in markets or people in the local mosque or shrine or um, or at local restaurants. And I want to to return year after year and hear their stories. And um, because I think that's the the for me, the best way to get work that I think is significant is to to dig deeper. So definitely it pushed me that the accident and the realization that that life is short and, you know, not just short, but incredibly beautiful and so full of potential and I have one chance to make a difference um, to to other people as well, and I want to be very intentional about that rather than just accidentally happening. Uh, I think a lot of us live our lives, especially in the first world, we live our lives on cruise control, forgetting that uh, we have a great deal of input in uh, into you know the patterns that we live in our lives. So maybe this idea of intentionality and making works that matter ties into what I wanted to ask you next uh, that was inspired by reading a recent blog post of yours, uh, which is titled uh, Your Most Powerful Photographic Tool. And mm-hmm. I, I don't want to spill the beans. I want you to uh, to speak a little bit about uh, this post and about actually what is the most powerful photographic tool that people can use. Well, that's a good question. Uh, certainly in the blog post, uh, if I recall it correctly, my assertion was that the most photo- powerful photographic tool is not our cameras, it's not our lenses, but that it is the the visual language, that it's composition, it's what we do with lines and moments and, and light. Um, 
certainly, I, I very strongly believe that. I think on on a different day, if you asked me what our most powerful tool is, I would say that it's uh, that it's our mind, that it's our creativity, uh, there's it, that it's our humanity. Even, you know, we we talk a lot in popular photography circles about uh, about settings and about you know exif data and which camera and which lens and and the reality is to to a large extent and there's going to be people that disagree with me on this and and tell me that if the camera doesn't matter i should just you know take up watercolors but um the camera really doesn't does not matter that much um we have got to a point in technical development where our cameras are so much more advanced the optics are so much more um they're so good I mean, they're better than anything. These classic photographers, Henri Cartier-Bresson or Ansel Adams or Robert Duanoa, I mean, name your favorite photographer from 50 years ago. They didn't have even closely the kind of access that we do to technology uh, that that makes it easier than ever to make a sharp, well-exposed photograph. And I think as most people will know, will acknowledge it if they're given some time, uh, it's not a sharp and well-exposed photograph that resonates with people. No one will ever, uh, 50 years from now, be talking about my legacy of work and say, my God, his photographs were so sharp. His histograms were so amazing. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, that's that's the price of entry, that, that you can focus an image and expose an image. Um, we shouldn't even be talking about that. I mean, that, should, that it's assumed that you know how to do that stuff. What we should be talking about is the role of curiosity and patience and um, what composition and the visual language actually conveys to people. How do we make photographs that move people and compel people? I can tell you, cinematographers, as visual storytellers, they're not sitting around, for the most part, talking about lenses and cameras. They're sitting around and talking about how can we tell a compelling story? How can we move people with the the language that we have at our disposal, yes, with the lenses and the cameras, but with cuts and with sound editing and with the the story itself and with the acting, all of those pieces, those are the things we need to be talking about, not specifically, you know, should I be photographing with a DSLR or a mirrorless camera? Because it's not about the mirrors. It's not about the Leicas and the Panasonics and the Fujis. Um, they all make stunning, well-exposed, focused images if you, if you let them and you know how to use the tool that's in your hand. Beyond that, um, you know, this is a, a communication language. It's a, it's a way of touching people visually, and we're very visual people. So, you know, de- again, depending on the day, that, that would be sort of <laughs> the, uh, that would be my answer. Anyway, the Fujis are the best. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no, there is one sentence in that blog post that really, I think sums up much of what you just said and it is um, i'm just reading it it is connecting and engaging and worrying more about inspiring than being inspired and i think that is something that many people forget many people look for for inspiration to get something for them to help them make better photos without thinking that their photos are not only for themselves are for other people to be inspired so i think we should think more about that Certainly, I think that's an opportunity for us, you know, and, and it's easy for me to forget that some people just get into photography just purely to play with the toys and make well-exposed and well-focused photographs. And those really are not the people to whom I'm I'm speaking. I think 
that as you said, you know, yes, inspiration's great, but all the artists through history have said that the role of inspiration is is vastly overrated. You know, Picasso said it, um, Chuck Close said, inspiration's for amateurs, you know, just get to work. Uh, we talk a lot about inspiration, but we really don't talk about work ethic and just how hard it is just to day after day get up and go out there and and make a lot of really bad photographs in search of the one that that you know that has that spark and that uh, that does more than just say look how well I can use a camera. You, you've got a new ebook out um, that's called the Photographic Story: How to Use Storytelling to Make More Powerful Photographs. Um, and I have a feeling that it's along the lines of what you're talking about, but, uh, can you share some bits of that book and, um, and how we can achieve that? Yeah. I mean, it, we talk a lot about story. You, you go onto any of the forums, um, you know, or blogs or whatever, and people are talking about telling a great story, but no one seems to be unpacking it and talking about what a story actually is. We know that we resonate with stories. We know that a powerful story is um, is an incredible way to connect with people. But but what what are the basic elements of a story and how do we include those? You know, telling a story, a whole story, I think in a still frame is real. That's a that's a tall order. It's a really hard thing to do. But we can imply story. We can you know, ultimately it comes down to the imagination. You know, the very best movies that you see, if if it's based on a book, everyone will always say, oh, the book was always better. Well, of course the book was better. The book was better because the book relies on the power of our imagination as, as viewers. And the worst movies, especially the horror genre, are the ones where they just show you the monster right at the beginning. You know, boom, there's the big bad monster. Because then there's nothing left to your imagination. And and so the I guess the contention of my book and it's not a it's not a super long book but I think it's a deep book it just says here are the elements of storytelling things like setting and character and conflict or contrast um mystery how can you take those things and engage an audience just even one person that that reads your photograph how can you give them enough hooks for their own imagination which is far more powerful than our uh, ex- choices of exposure and how we focus and whether we used a prime lens or a zoom lens or any of that other nonsense, how can we use the elements of story to engage people's imagination so that that, that experience of the photograph is so much more in their own head rather than just some two-dimensional you know, piece of paper or, or a series of pixels on a screen. Um, I really believe that storytelling, the reason storytelling is can be so powerful is because it hooks our imagination. And I think we can do that with our photographs, uh, maybe not in the same way as, as a book or the same way as a movie, but we can provide enough that that visual experience uh, becomes something something more compelling than just, I was here, here's what it looked like, um, that it becomes someone's own, part of their own story and part of their own imagination. Speaking of books, you have a new one coming out this year that is titled uh, The Soul of the Camera. Uh, why don't you talk about that one as well and, uh, and let us know where can one find The Soul of the Camera? Uh, the easiest way, of course, is just to go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble um, or, frankly, any, any online right now online seller uh, and pre-order it. 
it's just called the soul of the camera and i believe the subtitle is the the place of the photographer in picture making uh or the photographer's place in picture making i can't remember but it's it, it really it's 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 about exactly what we've just been talking mm-hmm. about it it talks about story it talks about curiosity and patience and discipline and really everything that is not the camera the the camera is this it's just like the pressing the button there was this great video with Henri Cartier-Bresson and uh Charlie Rose years and years ago and Cartier-Bresson was notoriously antagonistic with reporters he very rarely gave interviews and the interview is actually you can find it on YouTube it's it's quite painful to watch because Charlie Rose almost never let Cartier-Bresson speak and when he did it was these terrible leading questions and and at one point he said you know after all these years I mean you must you must know the secret to making a great photograph and Cartier-Bresson just kind of looks at him and you know he's got this rich French accent he says you know there's there's no secret it's just and then he just makes this motion with his finger of just pressing the shutter button you know several times he's just, he's just pressing the button the, the camera and of course you and I know that that's not that's not the case but the, the camera itself is just a tool and it's like asking a paint a painter what the secret to using his brushes is it's it's the internal stuff it's the way that our creativity works uniquely for us um, and so the book talks about creativity. It talks about patience and curiosity. As I said, it talks about the role of all of this other stuff, of visual language, of storytelling, uh, because ultimately there are billions of photographs out there and billions of cameras. I have something like 15 or 16 cameras um, just, you know, as I look around my, my office here, um, you know, some of them I haven't used for a long time, uh, but the, the photographs themselves, the thing that goes out into the world, that's not really a product of the camera. Uh, that's just the, the camera's the final step. So the soul of the photograph basically says, you know, if you want to put soul or spark or life into your photographs, it has to come from us, from the photographers. Better cameras don't make better photographs. They might make sharper photographs. They might make bigger photographs. Uh, they might make photographs faster or more conveniently, depending on the genre of photo- photography you do. Uh, and I would never argue that, you know, the f- camera is totally irrelevant. If you're a sports photographer, of course, you need certain tools. If you're a portrait photographer, you need certain tools. Uh, but but those, those again, those are just the price of entry. They just get you in the door. The rest is entirely between our ears, um, just in the same way as a portrait really is is more about the relationship of, between the subject and the photographer the, the camera is just kind of a, a an intermediary so the the book really is an argument for for something better for something deeper in our photography than just sharp and well exposed and that 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 comes from us not from the cameras so of course uh, learning how to operate a camera can be learned can be taught even though our cameras nowadays are much more complicated than the ones that Cartier-Bresson Cartier-Bresson used to use. I mean, he had like a couple dials and a button. I was counting uh-huh. the, the buttons and the dials on my camera, and I think I stopped at 25 without even <laughs> thinking about the menus. So it definitely takes more time to learn how to use a camera, but it's it's pretty obvious that it can be learned. But what about those other qualities like you, you, that you mentioned, like creativity and curiosity? Can they be learned? Can they be taught? What do you think? I'm I'm not sure that they can be taught. Uh, I do believe they can be learned. Uh, they can be discovered and 
uh, developed. They can be honed. Um, I, I think it's kind of like, you know, um, like a, you, you sort of, you, you light a, you light a match and hope mm-hmm. other people will get, uh, will catch the spark, but we all have to discover it in, in, really for ourselves but there are ways that we can discover it there are ways that we can hone it or understand the basic principles of for example creativity it it's people often talk about it as as though it's some mysterious thing uh the reality is it's it really isn't it's not predictable uh, how we are creative is is very different from uh, that we are creative. Uh, we are all creative. Our brains all work in certain ways and, and the creative process all works in some very general ways. I think understanding that gives us a, a starting place for uh, understanding our own very specific way of being creative. Uh, but this is the hard stuff about photography. It's the stuff that the camera makers really don't want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And so they come up with these banal marketing slogans about, you know, your ultimate creative tool and all of this nonsense. Well, no, I'm sorry, but my ultimate creative tool is something I'm going to discover over the course of my lifetime and it will change as my vision changes. But that's the hard stuff. I mean, the hard stuff is now I can expose, now I can focus. How do I f- make the image that's uniquely me? There was no manual for how Picasso came up with his, you know, with Guernica or with any of his stuff. There's no manual for just do these three things and you will suddenly unlock the secrets for, for who you are. It's a lifetime of creativity and struggle. Um, hopefully you enjoy the journey enough that you just can't get out, can't wait to get out there and see what you create. And when you look at the, when you look at the crap, uh, on the back of your camera, you realize these are just sketches and I'm working my way to something stronger. Uh, hopefully there's, you know, there's, there's a joy and excitement about that, but it, it's a, it's a struggle, you know, it's, it's yeah, not it's, easy. It's definitely a struggle. Uh, I for one, I for one don't, uh, don't ascribe to the view that, you got to be born with uh, with those qualities. You you have to be a born creative, that you're born with talent. Uh, it takes a lot of hard work. For some people, it takes more work than for others, but definitely, it's at least in my view, you can learn uh, those things. So yeah. I, I you know I think creativity is a work ethic. I think I think it's something that you you work at, and you, I, like I said, we're all differently creative. I believe I was born with what I have. Uh, but I think everyone's born with what they have, and it's just a question of of discovering it. And I think one of the hardest things is that some people, they're just, you know, they they're, for example, they might be brilliant engineers or architects, and they pick up a camera, and they also want to be brilliant at that. Um, it just might not be in their makeup to be more than just a competent photographer. I mean, we can only excel in so many things, and I think some of us. I mean, there's a million things I would love to do, but I know I will never be uh, a great musician. I could with practice, I could absolutely become competent. Um, but it just, I think it, it's, we all have our own, we all, all have our own sets of things, but many of us never even discover it because we we figure, like you said, you know, we figure, oh, someone else is born with those and I wasn't. Uh, you got to dig, you got to scratch beneath the surface and see if it's there. And um, I think one of the worst things you can do is compare yourself with other people creatively and go, well, I'm no, you know, I'm no Steve McCurry or I'm no, I mean, insert, you know, Annie Leibovitz or whoever. Well, of course you're not. And the longer you try to be that person or have the same gifts or, or uh, that your gifts 
express themselves in the same way, that the harder it's going to be. Right. You'd mentioned that you're involved with NGOs and uh, specifically the BOMA project. Can you tell mm-hmm. us about your work with them? Yeah, I can. The um, I I don't know if every, everyone knows my biography, but uh, when I got out of college, I um, uh, and my professors were so proud. I went on to be a, a stand-up comedian for uh, for twelve years, and uh, at a certain point, it just kind of it just wasn't enough anymore. I wanted more, and I didn't know what. And I had an opportunity to go to Haiti uh, as a comedian and and that is a longer story but just before i left the group that was bringing me found my work online as a photographer and said would you be willing to bring your cameras and photograph for us and i said sure i you know I'll, I'll point my lens at anything given a given a a chance and i brought my cameras and and i got off the plane and started photographing and i was probably i don't know 12 photographs in when i realized this is what i want to do with my photography i'd been a photographer since i was 14 but I never really knew what I wanted to do. I had learned my craft, but what what stories did I want to tell? And uh, I realized then and there that that all the pieces were coming together and that what I wanted to do was photograph uh, for humanitarian organizations, help them tell stories, help them raise money, help them find advocacy. Um, so I, I just kind of, I went home and I told everyone that I knew that I was going to become a humanitarian photographer. And um, I, I just sort of started trying to figure that out, figure out what does it mean and who do I want to photograph for. And uh, and eventually I did a couple self-funded assignments. I went to Ethiopia to do a, a cookbook that never got off the ground, but was a really good idea. Um, and I got some good photographs and that led to a connection with someone who was the vice president at a major ad agency in California that works specifically with nonprofits. And she said, you know, I, I have the need for a photographer. My photographer's, um, he's no longer available. Would you be willing to go to a couple African countries for a few weeks and shoot a project for a major client? Uh, And of course, I was absolutely terrified, but I said yes and uh, went and just kind of struggled through my first assignment. Uh, The client was thrilled. I realized this is something that I can do. And that was kind of it. I started taking regular assignment work and uh, over the years until I had my accident, I was that was my primary bread and butter was working for humanitarian, uh, non-governmental organizations and community-based organizations. Um, and then I had the accident and had to kind of reconfigure some things. And now uh, I still take clients, but my work is primarily pro bono, uh, which means I'm working for much smaller organizations, organizations that frankly can't afford me, but that can afford me an opportunity for creative collaboration and uh, something that's beyond the working for the really big organizations because as deep pockets as the big organizations have, uh, they also require certain things of you. Most of them want you to sign off on your copyright. Most of them want very strict creative control. And those were things that were becoming increasingly dissatisfying to me. Um, and I, through a series of relationships, developed this uh, this connection with the BOMA project. They they do work in a place that I love. They do work that I admire and respect. Um, you know the work that they do. They do it in a way that I respect. Uh, you don't have to do this kind of work for very long before you come a little bit cynical, and um, 
and this work actually is is a really it's a, an antidote to my cynicism. So I return every two years with the Boma Project, and I photograph portraits for them, and I photograph uh, stories, and I photograph um, you know the context in which the the people that they work with uh, live and and struggle to to survive. And it's it's been really it's been deeply deeply rewarding. So the first year they paid me and paid me quite well. And after that, I said, you know, if you're willing to, if you're willing to commit to a long term project, I'd like to come on and and do this as sort of as a pro bono thing and a, as a contributor to this thing rather than someone who's just drawing a paycheck. So it's been very rewarding. And um, you know, I've just come back now from my fourth assignment with them, and it's to go back to a community that you've been to time after time and people recognize you and they you photographed them before and now you know changes have occurred in their lives and you can hear their story it's just it's so much more rewarding than just kind of doing a hit and run with your cameras showing up at a village in one place and then moving on and never returning do you have any advice for people looking to find assignments working with ngos uh yeah, oh i have lots of advice um i would say that the biggest two are um it, understand your client. You know, this is, they are not looking for someone who knows how to use a camera because there's many, many people out there who know how to use a camera and many of them are clamoring uh, to go and to work for them, whether it's for free or paid. They want people that understand their context, your value to them. Of course, it's knowing how to use a camera, but it's much more than that. Your value to them is, can you tell a compelling story? Can, do you understand the needs of an organization? Um, do you understand the need to protect relationships that this organization has worked for years to create? Uh, having a photographer just you know bounce in out of nowhere uh, and start calling the shots can be very disruptive to a program. So there's there's a lot involved, and I would say, you know, like anything, you've got to understand your context. You you need to understand what your clients want, and increasingly, they want more than just uh, a happy photograph or a picture of a sad kid with flies around their eyes. They want a photographer who can tell a story and communicate hope and dignity. They want someone who understands that this is visual communication and maybe uh, understands multimedia, video. I don't do multimedia or video, but uh, but I write. And anything that you can bring to the package that is more than just about I can give you a you know a zip drive full of photographs uh, will be very compelling to the the client. And the other thing I would say is you have to just, you have to know why you're doing this. If this is to make a buck off the uh, misfortune of the poorest of the poor, uh, I would suggest you sort of look somewhere else to to make your money. Because it's hard work and the pockets are not deep. And I, I know people that are making a living as humanitarian photographers, uh, but they're making sacrifices in other ways. And others that are doing it are funding their work with other stuff. I do it with uh, with my ebooks. You know, people that buy my ebooks on craftandvision.com are, in a way, they are subsidizing my work with uh, with organizations. Um, so that these organizations couldn't put their money where it really, where it's really, um, where it's better used. So that would be my advice is really understand your context and uh, go in with, not with low expectations, but go in with, with good expectations. You know, you're, you're either there to, to help them tell their story um, or you're there to, you know, <laughs> to pad your bank account. Uh, if you're there for one, the work will go quite well for you, though it'll be challenging. If you're there for the other, um, it's going to be tough to find clients that are 
uh, that are on board with, you know, with your big fees and, um, you know, your lack of concern for the actual issues. Um, someone like Sebastio Salgado is a great example to me in all of this. I mean, I think he's probably doing quite well financially, um, but he spent his lifetime not pursuing that. He spent his lifetime, as best as I can tell, pursuing the actual issues, the stories, and the money he does make is going back into these causes. So, you know, there are very few people, I think, that are doing humanitarian photography that are driving a Mercedes around. Well, uh that's that's just great. I mean, I would uh, love to listen to you for hours because you have the, the ability to go so much in in depth about topics, uh, not just skim over them. But unfortunately, we are at um, almost at the top of the time we have allotted for for this interview. Uh, and by the way, do, do you still do uh, YouTube videos so people can maybe go and listen more to? <laughs> I uh, I'm not I'm not sure what the answer to that is yet. I've taken a break. I was doing a uh, I was doing a a a somewhat weekly uh, video podcast called Vision is Better, and for now I've put that project on hold. I don't think video is my strongest medium, Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm trying to do some sort of engage in some deeper work right now in terms of the writing. So I put really I put it on hold to finish Soul of the Camera and do some other writing. So if I can come up with some good ideas of things to talk about. as you've alluded to, I, I usually have no shortage of words, but the, the shortage of ideas I, I always struggle with. So uh, for now, you, these, there's an archive of something like 50 episodes on YouTube uh, uh, called Vision is Better. But um, that's that's it for now. I'm not sure. And aside from YouTube, where can people go and find more about you online? Well, you can follow me on Instagram. My handle is David Dushman, uh, or you can find me on Facebook um, under the same name. And uh, predictably, my website is daviddushman.com. And there you can find not only my portfolio, but uh, when you first go there, the first landing page is my blog. So I'm constantly, uh, you know, at least once or twice a week uh, while I'm at home, I'm, I'm updating it with articles about the art and craft of photography and how to, you know, how to struggle through this and make really compelling photographs rather than just the sharp stuff we'll certainly put links to to all of that in the in the show notes uh ralph do you have any other questions you would like to ask i don't think so thank you so much david for some wonderful insights uh, appreciate your time and uh i'm looking forward to continuing to follow you yeah, thanks so much for your time, Ralph. It's been uh, it's been wonderful, and uh, and you go as well. Perhaps we'll cross paths when I'm in Italy next. Yeah, I'm always up to to that to sit uh, outside in the sun and drink some wine. It's my favorite oh, pastime. <laughs> I'm I'm there. I'm there. All right, gentlemen. Thank you so much. You're, you're welcome. Very much. Uh, appreciate your time and uh, and your, thanks, David. your words. And uh, let's keep in touch. I'd like that. Take, Take care. care, guys. Bye bye. So, Ugo, before we sign off, uh, do you have any trips, workshops, or speaking engagements coming up in the near future that you want to tell us about? Well, actually, just after a period where I was traveling left and right, I was uh, calculating that I took 12 flights and two train rides just in the first, uh, not even two months of 2017. For a while, I will be sitting here. I just came home from Venice. I had a wonderful week there with some uh, with some guests uh, leading a workshop. We did some uh, great shots there for for the carnival. 
and we are going to repeat it next year. So I'm currently busy busy thinking about the, the trips I will have next year. Actually, my probably my next uh, trips or speaking engagements will be in June. When I go, I will go to I will come to Chicago, to where you are, to for the Out of Chicago conference. But maybe there will be some other trips in between, but nothing really really planned. Great. Uh, for me, I've got, uh, let's see, I'm heading to Cuba this Saturday as uh, we speak. Uh, so probably have already been there by the time this episode comes out, but uh, that'll be my 16th trip to Cuba with a group. And then I'm back for, I don't know, maybe 10 days. Then I'm off to Jerusalem, as I mentioned, to speak at the Travel Bloggers Exchange or TBEX. And uh, there I'm going to be introducing my new tour organizer training program where I teach people how to organize and lead their own trips, which I'm really excited about. And from there, I go to, uh, to Spain and Portugal for some uh, writing time and some personal time. I got a trip to Morocco. That's full. And then uh, Baltics. Got a few spots left on that trip. And I'm back in June and got an Iceland trip in July, so a lot of a lot of travel coming up. Looking forward to. Uh, other than TBEX, though, I'm pretty much done with speaking. Just finished up in Santa Clara and Los Angeles for the travel shows. But so, uh, uh, I've signed up for your uh, preview of the tour organizer training, which I think uh, will be really interesting. So I'm waiting for to, to get the first uh, something to know more about that. Uh, yeah, and that's what I'll be doing in Spain and Portugal is putting together, just sticking my head down and putting together that program from start to finish. Uh, really looking forward to uh, to doing that and to getting it out in the world. So people can go to tourorganizertraining.com if they'd like to uh, sign up for uh, more information when it becomes available. So aside from that, where can people find more about you online? Yeah, so people can go to my website at photoenrichment.com. They can also follow me on all the social media platforms at both at Photo Enrichment and at Ralph Velasco. How about for you, Ugo? Yeah, as for me, my main uh, website is ucphoto.me. But people can uh, find me on various, uh, again, social media platforms, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and so on. I go by different handles. I made a mistake years ago of not using the same handle everywhere. So just Google my name, Ugo Che, you will find me everywhere. And um, with that, uh, I think it's all. Uh, just uh, if, you, if you have been enjoying the show, dear audience, uh, tell your friends, put, an, uh, put up a review on iTunes, let us know what you think of the show. And especially... I've been uh, uh, hearing from people that they say they want something different once in a while. Uh, we would like to know what you want, uh, what you want to hear about, what you want, what kind of guests you would like on the show, what kind of uh, changes you would like to see in the format, if any. Just uh, just let us know. Uh, you can write us an email or contact us through the contact form on the website. That is uh, ttim.photo. So thanks again for listening.